Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss how to ask better questions, share lessons from solving some of the world's most interesting challenges, and share with you why you need to think about the job to be done with our guest, Bob Mesta. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com you can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word smarter. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we uncovered the truth about networking, why most people do it wrong, how you can do it right, and the key ingredient that's been missing in your networking efforts with our previous guest, Dr. Ivan Meisner. Now for our interview with Bob. Bob Mesta is a founder, maker, innovator, speaker, and now a professor, pioneer of jobs to be done, sorry, pioneer of jobs to be done theory, innovation, and new venture expert on creating, developing, and launching of new products and services. The co-founder and president of the Rewired Group, Bob helps leaders and companies repeatedly innovate and reliably predict and drive lasting success. He's also the co-author of Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life. Bob, welcome to the Science of Success. Matt, thanks for having me on, man. I'm excited. Well, we're really excited to have you on the show today. You know, you have worked on so many different products and industries, and it's such a fascinating background. I'd love to hear a little bit 
about how many different products you've helped build and some of the diverse experiences that you've had? Yeah, so I'm from Detroit, and it's one of those things where I think from the womb I was an engineer, meaning I was taking things apart by the time I was three. And by the time I was six, I figured out how to put it back together so I didn't get in trouble. But I had three close head brain injuries when I was a little kid, and basically I can't read and I can't write. And so I had to learn in very different ways. And so everything to me was about kind of tactically pulling things apart and putting them together. But what it allowed me to do is actually ask questions and have conversations. And so I've always been a curious kid. And so for the most part, I've been asking questions pretty much my whole life. I'm 55 now. But I've been able to kind of walk into situations and ask some of the basic questions that most people don't want to ask or they're afraid to ask. I've always asked. And to be honest, I've worked on things like the guidance system for the Patriot missile. I've worked on the radar absorbing materials for the B-2 bomber and the advanced tactical fighter. I worked on five gum flavors and I've worked on Pokemon mac and cheese and base camp. And pretty much there isn't an industry I haven't worked in at this point in time. And the cool part is I get pulled into like where it's a very complicated problem and the approach that I bring to it helps clarify and get things back to basics. I love that. Working on everything from bombers to Pokemon and mac and cheese. Yeah, that's hilarious. Let's start with, even before getting into some of the meat of your work, which is so fascinating, let's start with the power of asking questions. That simple framework of asking the basic questions that people are afraid to ask. What does that really look like and how do we start to assess situations more effectively and ask better questions? I was that little kid who asked a thousand questions and annoyed everybody. But my mom basically had taught me a whole bunch of different tools because she knew that if I was labeled dyslexic in 1972, I would have gone a completely different route. So she taught me ways in which to kind of tackle my inability to basically then turn it into a super ability. So I have all these little hacks that help me see things from a very different perspective. But it's the notion of asking questions and understanding how things work. So like, What causes somebody to say, today's the day I'm going to buy a new mattress, right? Like at some point in time, they might know who you are and they might know all the correlative details of how old you are and the average age and all this stuff. But what causes you to say, today's the day I'm going to buy a mattress? And typically what you'll find is most businesses will know everything about their consumer except for why. (laughs) And so part of this is to understand and dig way past what I call the cake layer of the reasons right? There's this deeper underlying what I call social, emotional, and functional things that cause you to say, today's the day, I got to buy a mattress. And it's not one thing. It's a set of things. And so part of this is being able to actually see people's world, see the context that they live in, understand the outcomes they're desiring, and be able to put that together into what I call the job to be done, which is people don't buy products, they hire them to make progress in their life. And so that's the underlying frame of how I ask all my questions. And so what's really interesting is you look at a situation and you'll see somebody do something very irrational. What I found out is that the irrational becomes rational with context, meaning if I actually see somebody do something irrational, I probably don't actually understand the situation they're in. And once I understand the situation they're in, I can actually then figure out why they did what they did. And so part of this is being able to ask those kinds of questions. I love the almost beginner's mind that you approach these questions with this idea of something as simple as why does somebody buy a mattress? What causes them to actually walk into the mattress store? And you're right. In today's world, we focus so much on all these data and analytics and consumer demographics and everything. And yet 
a lot of times these fundamentally really simple, but really, in many cases, difficult to answer questions get left by the wayside. Well, you talk to a lot of people who've been in products for a long time and they have all this data wrapped around it, but we tend to measure what's easy to measure, but not what's meaningful to measure. This actually started with a quest to understand what is value and what do people value? And you start to realize that after the purchase, people tell lies to themselves of why they bought something. But when you actually interrogate them, the method that I built is really based on criminal and intelligence interrogation. And it really kind of pieces together the dominoes that have to fall in somebody's life to say, today's the day I want a new mattress or today's the day I'm going to buy a house. It's this aspect that I, nothing is random. Just because somebody didn't plan to do it doesn't mean it's not caused. Right? They'll say, oh, it's an impulse purchase. And I don't believe in an impulse purchase. I believe that you didn't think you were going to buy something and you bought it. But you've been looking. So my favorite is I interviewed somebody on a mattress and they're like, yeah, you know, we were in Costco on a Saturday. I had no intention to buying a mattress. And next thing I know, I'm running outside. I got the two kids with me and do it. I'm like, so my next question was, how long haven't you been able to sleep? And it's like, well, that's been about three years. And if you <laughs> unpack the entire story, it's about literally very stressful job, not sleeping well, have some big things coming up. All of a sudden it's like, you know, and happens to be with his spouse basically going like, we really should think about a mattress. And finally they say, you know what? That's fine. Why don't we get a new mattress? So they were waiting for that one last domino of the spouse basically agreeing that they needed a new mattress. Right. But the whole reasons why they did it is it was the fact that, they, you know, they hadn't been sleeping, that I had a lot of stuff going on. All that's part of their context that says today's the day I'm going to buy a new mattress. And most people try to get back to, well, what's the single most important? Goes, well, it was comfortable, right? It's not it at all. <laughs> it's so interesting and a vital point to underscore. And I'd like to explore a little bit more is this idea that, as you put it, there's no such thing as an impulse purchase because of the context, this one decision, this one data point. And if you're a company or business or you're selling a product, you might only look at the world through that tiny little peephole, that tiny little sliver of data. And yet there's an entire life with all these social and emotional and behavioral influences all stacking into that one decision point. And a lot of times the full context is missing or hidden or not really understood. Well, what's interesting is that somehow we, we got to where we want to actually understand the value of our product and we want to know it in absolute terms, irrelative context. But the thing is, I always say context creates value and contrast creates meaning. The way I always talk about it is like, you know, do you like steak or do you like pizza? And most people say I like both. Well, tell me about the last time you had pizza as well. You know, we were running late and the kids were hungry and we need to get home and we need to get them into bed. So we went and got pizza. And we, it's like, great. Now, if I put steak in that context, how good is steak? Not very good. And then I talk about the last time we have steak and it's usually uh, we're celebrating something. We have a big meal together. We're having wine. Wherever this is like, and how good would pizza fit in that? Not so good. And so you start to realize that context adds as much value to your product as the product does. And finding out where and when in space and time is actually as important, if not more important, than just designing the best product. Such a great insight. And the example of steak versus pizza really crystallizes that because it shows you how powerful context can be in each of those examples. Yeah. One of the products I worked on was Snickers. And so if you start to realize, like, people would think that Snickers and Milky Way compete with each other. They're both candy bars. They're both made with the same ingredients. One's got peanuts. One doesn't. 
But the reality is like when you think about the last time you had a Snickers is typically you missed the last meal, your stomach is growling, you've got to do a bunch of work, you're trying to get back to yourself because you know that you're getting hungry and you're not performing the way you need to. And so it competes with a coffee and a Red Bull and a sandwich. But nobody thinks of a Milky Way when they're in that situation. And when you think of a Milky Way, it actually competes with ice cream and brownies and a glass of wine and, and a run of all things. And you start to realize like, as much as they're the same product, they actually don't compete with each other at all, ever. That's so true. I mean, on the surface, they're almost the exact same thing. And yet, they do have very different contextual lives. Right. Snickers is like one skew. They have some others. They're always trying to grow it. But the real is like it's one skew. And it's about three and a half billion dollars in sales. That's incredible. So I don't really think of it as a candy bar. It's actually a food bar disguised as a candy bar. That's amazing. And so Zooming out a little bit, how did you come to this realization that the context is so important and contributes in some cases more value than the product or service and is such a rich piece of the tapestry? So when I was 18 years old, I sat down next to, I thought it was somebody's grandfather. It happened to be a guy by the name of Dr. Deming who was the gentleman who went to Japan in 1948 and helped rebuild Japan and then built the Toyota production system. So if you know Lean, you know Six Sigma, you know TQM, he's kind of the father of all that. He was 85 and I was 18 and I sat down next to him and I asked him like 40 questions in 20 minutes and he kind of went like, boy, you're a curious kid. How'd you like to be my intern? So I interned for him for three summers and I went to Japan and learned all these different methods around engineering and developing new products and the way that Toyota was doing it. And then I worked for Ford Motor Company out of college. And so to me, it's all really pushed me in terms of being able to kind of realize that when I would ask people what they wanted and I built it, they'd go like, mm, no, that's not what I wanted. And so I'd be like, oh my gosh, like how do I figure this out? And marketing would tell me all this information, but because I was actually dyslexic, I couldn't read any of the reports. And so I had to figure out my own version of a hack to kind of go like, how would I do this? So I went and figured out how to go interview people about what they really wanted and why they wanted it and why they did what they did. And I would actually come back with way more details around kind of the trade-offs that people were willing to make as opposed to, boy, I wanted to have great gas mileage and I wanted to be, you know, very fast and I wanted to be this and I wanted to be that. Like consumers make trade-offs all the time. And so I was able to kind of figure that stuff out. And so the way I always talk about it is marketing usually does a lot of research to help buy media. And to describe something as fun and to advertise something as fun is very different than to engineer fun. Like I have to cause fun on a regular basis. Like how does that happen? That's very different than just knowing like, hey, we got to save fun in the advertising. And so I think of traditional market research as like gasoline going in a regular engine, but I need actually rocket fuel to go into the engine for innovation. And so that's kind of where all of this started was realizing that I needed different kind of information at the right place at the right time. That's a great insight. And it's amazing how your dyslexia created this prism of looking at it from a completely different angle that ultimately led to such an innovative approach to consumer behavior. Yeah, I believe the struggling moment is the seed for all innovation. And so my struggling and most people would, again, I think of dyslexia as one of the greatest gifts I ever got. Because with that, I'll say inability, it actually created a super ability. Like the way my mom taught me to read was, when I look at a paragraph or I look at a page, the first thing I see is all the spaces between the words. And she'd say, all right, where's the longest space? And I'd see, you'd see like, okay, well, here's the big words. Now, if you can see the big words, analyze just the five largest words in the paragraph and guess what you think the paragraph is about. And so that's the way I learned to read. And so 
I can see patterns and stuff. Like I not only listen to what people say, but how they say it. So for example, boy, that was really good. And when they go down at the end, that means there's an exception to it. So you, the follow-up question is like, so what didn't you like? Versus, boy, that was really good. And if they go up at the end, that usually means that they were satisfied. Well, what did you love the most? And so you start to realize you have to listen to not only what people say, but how they say it. I want to come back to something you said a minute ago, and then I want to dig deeper into how we peer into the context of people's lives. But you made a point a minute ago, and you resurfaced it as well, which is this idea that consumers often don't even understand their own motivations, their own behavior, their own reasoning. And if you ask them in a lot of contexts, they may not even tell you and they may not even consciously realize the real reason behind why they did something. Oh, yeah. A couple things around that. One is this notion that we go through our lives like points in time. And so we don't actually think about like how long it took us to figure out how to buy a mattress. We're just literally thinking about it and then it's like goes out of our head and then all of a sudden we're somewhere else or we didn't sleep well. It's like, God, we should do that mattress. And it just stuff keeps popping into our head. So we actually never connect the dots because the rest of life gets in the way. But when you actually slow somebody down and figure out kind of like, you know, how did you actually buy a new mattress? They start to realize like it was actually really complicated. It was not easy. I had to make a lot of trade-offs and it took me four years to get there. Like you start to realize that people just don't connect those dots. So when you ask somebody in a survey after they bought the mattress, why would you buy the mattress? Oh, it was because of the sale. <laughs> like, okay. But that's not the real reason why they did it. It's part of the reason maybe. But the reality is, is that there's underlying causal factors that they don't even remember or don't even understand. And the domino is a great analogy because a domino half its size can topple a domino that's twice its size. So if I have 10 dominoes in a line, I can have something that's one inch that knocks over something that's 10 feet. And that shows you the power of maybe they're ascribing the change to that one little domino, but really it was all of these factors that have been stacking up right. in the broader context of their lives. Exactly. And so the way we look about it is if I have to take one of those dominoes out of the set, will this not happen? And you start to realize like there's not a hundred dominoes. There's usually five, six, seven different dominoes. And it's literally they're pieced together on the combination of the context they're in and the outcome that they seek and the trade-offs they're willing to make. And so if you ask somebody about how they bought something or what they struggle with, you can actually start to understand how they make progress in their lives. And so framing the progress now actually gives us, so the way Clay Christensen says it is, questions create spaces in the brain for solutions to fall into. And so that drove me to really get to kind of like, what question does a consumer ask themselves to say like, I need a new mattress. Because it's not that. They don't start with the mattress. They start with something else in their lives. By the way, the greatest competitor to a new mattress is a bottle of scotch, exercise, and Zequel. That's really interesting. And you start to see, once you flip this framework on its head and start to see the bigger context of people's lives, those types of conclusions emerge, right? That you see the competitor is not the other mattress firm or having more springs in your mattress or whatever. It's all of these comparable substitutes or things that are really solving the bigger contextual problem in their lives. So one of the other frames I wrap around, this is what I call supply side and demand side thinking, right? And supply side is the mattress company going, you know, we're a hybrid mattress with this density of foam and three different layers and we've got coils in it. And, we have, 
again, from the consumer side, it's like, what the hell does any of that mean? And the demand side is like, we can help you sleep. If it doesn't work, return it. Like that's the stuff they understand. The best example is the cameras, where if you look at where Nikon and Canon and Hasselblad, all the big cameras, they talk about f-stop and sensor size and lenses. And literally, as a parent of four, it was like, I just want to get a picture of my kid playing hockey. What camera is going to do that for me? I don't want to educate the crap out of myself. I just want to make take some good pictures of my kid playing hockey. And you start to realize like there's these notion where we don't even speak the right language to consumers and we try to get them to learn our language. Yeah, that's really interesting. And when we're trying to translate that language, start to speak to the consumers, when you're starting to form that vocabulary, how do you think about creating order from chaos in the sense of if you have somebody's entire life stacking all of these hundreds of dominoes and factors into place, how do you start to filter the signal from the noise and really figure out what are the key items that actually matter and which ones should you pay attention to and which ones shouldn't you? So one of my other mentors, his name was Dr. Genichi Taguchi, and he basically taught me how to build a signal to noise ratio for anything. And so one of the things that was so interesting is that aspect of where's the intent behind it. And so we look at where is the energy that's driving somebody to actually make progress. And there's three types. There's functional energy, which is more about saving time, saving money, making it easier, not having to think. There's all the kind of mechanics of it, right? There's the emotional energy, which is basically, you know, make me feel less bad, make me feel good, have me be less anxious, help me relax. There's all those kinds of things about internal. And then there's the social energy of what other people perceive me or how I want other people to think about me. And so when you start to pull it back to what are the energies that are driving somebody to say, today's the day I need a new mattress, there's a finite number of causes. There's an infinite number of descriptions. There's an infinite number of ways to characterize what happens. But the reality is like there are only finite causes and it's not a hundred. And so part of it is, is by going and talking to people and then what I say is abstracting it up to the intent behind it. You start to realize it's like when I'm very busy and I'm not sleeping well and I have a lot of stuff coming in the future that I need to perform on, like that's part of that context that makes people say today's the day I'm going to get a mattress. Now, it's not just one, but there might be three or four different pathways. There's a guy named Todd Rose who wrote a book, The End of Average, and he's the one who talks about that there's not actually one answer. There's multiple answers to the same question. And so part of it is to be able to understand what are the different pathways that people take not to average everything. And so to me, that influenced me a lot as well. So that notion of the signal-to-noise ratio, what are the underlying signals that are really causing people to make progress, and that there isn't one answer, but there's actually sets of answers And so how many different sets do we have? It's a great insight. And I like the categorizations of functional, emotional, social. Those are the three big buckets that you start to filter these infinite answers into and really get behind what is the motivation, what's driving these decisions. I think the other thing is to realize is that consumers don't know what they want. To ask consumers what they want in their product, like Deming would always say, like, it's the producer's responsibility to design the product. They might know the outcome they want. They don't know how to design a mattress. They actually don't even know how to buy a mattress. And so part of this is to realize like the reason why Casper is a billion dollar business at this point is because they've at least made it simplified to say like, tell me about what's going on. Tell me about the context and who is this mattress for? How do you sleep? It's not the fact that are you hot or cold? It's like, do you stick your leg out at night? It's these subtle little things that help you understand like, yeah, this is going to be the right mattress because they know me because I stick my leg out at night. Like, am I hot? Sometimes I'm hot, 
not always, you know what I mean? Like, so learning the questions and learning the intimacies of what the consumers really say and mean behind it. So it's like a lot of times they'll say, well, you know, I was sweating. And so, oh, I know what that is. It's like, how do you know? And so part of this is you have to dig way deeper than what their language is. So how do you start to dig deeper? So there's a great book. So I had started a book on the interview technique and there's some aspects around it that I still have, but there's a great book by Chris Voss. It's called Never Split the Difference. And he is a FBI negotiator and he literally walks through every single kind of technique that I use and the method. And like one of them is mirroring. So when somebody starts to tell me a story, for example, I always say, well, let's think about it as a documentary. And it's like, tell me about, well, you know, my kid was doing this. Well, what's your kid's first name? Jack. Okay. So what did Jack think? The moment that I actually move and put Jack in the story, it now becomes more vivid. They actually become more comfortable. They're actually going to tell you more details. So what did Jack think about that? Like, how did you respond to it? And I don't really care what they say they did. I want to know like the sequence of events and what happened. So like any good crime, there's a timeline to this thing and there's a sequence of things. And we talk about there's a first thought, there's something called passive looking, there's something called active looking, and then there's basically deciding and making trade-offs where you lock in kind of expectations. And then there's first trial and then usage. And that's the whole aspect of matching basically what their expectations were and delivering and doing the job. And so the interview itself is kind of the method by which we extract this information, but then by finding those dominoes and where they sit and the forces in terms of pushes and pulls and anxieties and habits, and then the energies of functional, social, and emotional, you can then start to actually codify these qualitative interviews to help you see patterns that you could not see before. So that's how I always say by dyslexia, it was the greatest gift I ever had, because if I could read, I probably would have never come up with this. <laughs> that's so interesting. And Chris Voss is a previous guest on the show. So we'll make sure to include that episode in the show notes for. Oh, yeah, it's great. He's great. He's phenomenal. For, yeah, so. that's yeah, that was a fantastic conversation. He's a great guy. But I love the idea of thinking about it like a documentary and focusing on the sequence of events. And you said something I want to make sure that I understand, which is Focus on what actually happened, not what they say they thought about or not what they say they were feeling. Explain that a little bit more. So a lot of times people will say, well, you know, I was angry. Like, well, why were you angry? Give me an example of what did you do because you were angry? Like if they were angry and they didn't do anything about it, then it really isn't probably relevant to the story, right? But if it's frustrated and they did something, where in the timeline does the action fit that you did? Because ultimately we have to actually see the actions that people take to get there. And so part of this is there's a lot of times people will talk about how they feel, but it actually doesn't motivate them to make progress. So the other thing is I don't talk to people who want to buy a house, for example, or who want to buy a mattress. I only talk to people who bought a mattress to understand the journey they had to go on and the trade-offs they had to make and the energy that caused them to do it. Because for every one person who made it, my belief is there's another hundred or a thousand or a million behind them that haven't figured it out yet. And so as you listen to these stories, though, you get the design requirements of finding out where you over-engineer something and where you actually don't pay attention and where averages kill you. And so you actually figure out how to build products that are actually, what I would say, it's a kick-ass half, not a half-ass whole. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And this whole idea of only talking to people who've already made the decision in interviewing people who have already gone through that journey, whatever the full context of that story is, 
as opposed to talking to people who say they're interested in buying a house or buying a mattress or whatever. That's a really interesting insight. The other part is if I talk to a wide range of people who have already bought, I actually can find the causes and then I can actually use it to help me design the sales process to help people sell. I can help you make progress on buying a new mattress. One of my favorites is a lot of times people will create the question, create the space in the brain for the solution to fall into, but then they answer it. And when you answer it, you actually fill the hole in where you should say is like, so why can't you sleep at night? And just leave it at that. Just let it go. Because that's the thing that's going to eat at them and go like, God, why can't I sleep at night? But if you say, oh, you can't sleep at night because it's your mattress, it's like, no, I don't need a mattress. <laughs> Very interesting. So what I've done is I've actually taken this framework and I've said, like, why do we not teach sales? And why is sales seen as such a bad thing? The one bad apple has spoiled the entire thing. But if you talk about people who really helped you make progress and you say, oh, how was your salesperson? They're like, oh, well, they're not my salesperson. They're my concierge. Or no, they're my advisor. And so you start to realize like really good salespeople really just help people make progress. And so if we can actually teach the sales organization and the marketing organization and the customer success organization to align against what's the progress we're trying to help people make and how do we work together as opposed to compete against each other, you start to realize it's a completely different way in which to manage sales. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. So before we dig into sales, tell me about the concept of progress, because I know that's a critical component of the Jobs to be Done framework. And you've mentioned it a number of times, but I want to explain in richer detail what that means. So progress to me is... We are creatures of habit and we will continue to do what we did if it works for us. But the moment that we decide that this isn't good enough, we then all of a sudden realize that why am I actually going to change something and what am I hoping for when I do it? And so that's why it's not jobs. It's jobs to be done. And so this notion is what progress are you hoping for when you buy a new car, when you actually move, when you go to college? When you go on vacation, you start to realize like at some point in time, it's a movement. Most people think about it as a snapshot, but in my mind, everything is a movie. And so part of it is to understand what's the progress I'm willing to make. And in progress, there are pushes that make you say today's the day. There's pulls, which are the things that you're aspiring for or the outcomes that you seek. There's anxieties that go against it, which are things you're worried about. And there's habits, which are there are things you love about the current way you're doing it. And so progress is being able to understand how do you see you making progress as a system and understanding the trade-offs you have to make in order to do that. I don't know if I made that much sense with that, but I tried. Yeah, no, that's a great <laughs> explanation. And this whole idea of viewing it as a system of, and this comes back almost to that, 
yeah, the idea of the full context of their lives, right? There's all these forces. They're getting pulled in some ways. They're scared of taking action in other ways. They've got their habits that are sticking them in certain types of behavior patterns. And all of these things are interacting in different currents and energies. And then ultimately, they end up buying a new house or buying a new car, whatever that might be, as a result of some shift or some change or some domino impacting the the behavior of the entire system. And it's not because the mattress had extra padding and new springs that are liquid cooled or whatever. That's right. Well, then it becomes hiring and firing criteria. What was the hiring criteria? What were the things you were most worried about? What was that priority on it? And again, you didn't want to pay that much, but you're willing to pay that much because you thought this would get you what? And so when people say, oh, I don't have the money, typically it's never about money. It's about their notion of value. They don't value what that is. Or you put so many features in it and I only need three of the 10 features. And so when I say, boy, it's just too expensive, it's usually too expensive because you actually put too much in it, not because they don't have the money. That's great. Really interesting insight. It's almost never about the money. And so the other thing I would say is that everything is cost. And so you don't randomly just pull something new into your life. In the grocery store, there's 28,000 new products a year in the grocery store and you might see 10 of them. You might, I'm saying you might buy 10 of them. You might see a few more. But if you know what you're having for lunch and you know what lunch is going to be and you've always bought turkey, you're going to buy turkey, right? Why change it if it works? And so the reality is when you say, well, you know, well, I got mesquite this time. I wanted to mix it up. Well, what was your intent? Did you want people to show that you cared? Because mixing it up is showing that I'm paying attention and that I care. So there's causality there. It's not just random that somebody picks mesquite this time and picks something else another time. Yeah. And this whole idea everything has a cause. One of my favorite parables or stories is this idea of you look at a nail being hammered into a board, right? In order for that to happen, the entire universe has to exist, the chain of events from all the planets and everything all the way to that person's parents and grandparents. It's like there's that nail being hammered into that board. There's so much context behind that, that it's essentially everything, right? And it's pretty amazing when you really take any single instance of anything, there's so much richness behind it that you can potentially unpack. Well, the bigger thing to me is where does growth come from? And what you start to realize is growth comes from where people want to make progress, but they can't. And they either can't figure it out or they don't have access to it or it's not to the quality level they want. And so I worked with SNHU and Paul LeBlanc. And basically, as we started to look at this, it was like, how many people want to go back to school but can't? And so he built a whole separate division of an online school. And he went from 500 online students in basically 2010 to he has 130,000 online students. He went from 100 million to a billion as a not-for-profit school. And he literally has halved the price of education by actually thinking about it, saying, like, how many people want to go back to school but can't? And now I'm going to actually make it easier for people. And he had to change all these different processes, like the application process. The typical application process for an 18-year-old is literally nine months right? They do it in literally less than a week. That's amazing. Right. But that's the whole aspect here of like growth really comes from what we call the low end of the market, the disruptors who basically walk in and say, how many people want to go to college but can't or want to go back to college and can't? So I want to bring this back to something you touched on a minute ago, which is this idea of sales and how you mentioned earlier and we talked about the pre-show. Sales is probably one of, if not the most important business skills. And yet it's essentially not taught in school at all. If you look at the most famous business schools, there's no sales training going on there. And in many ways, some people look down on it or it's a dirty word or whatever. I want to hear your thoughts about that. 
So one of the things that came out as I was developing products, the thing that I found, and I've done seven startups, and as I've done the startups, I realized like the hardest thing for me to really learn was how to sell. And when I went and tried to learn it through the traditional channels, it was like, hey, this makes no sense. I got to come up with features and benefits. I got a standard presentation. I got to come up with a demo. And the demo is like, well, it's contextual. Like, no, no, no. You just create one demo and you show everybody everything and you just push it through the funnel. And there's this notion of the funnel. And so the crazy part is you realize like if they're teaching sales, it's like somebody from the law school comes over and teaches negotiation. Somebody else from HR teaches kind of structure the sales force, but sales is kind of glossed over. And you start to realize like, selling, Daniel Pink said it, is to sell as human, right? Like this is one of those things where people want to make progress. They got to actually help us understand what they want to do. And so to me, after doing that, I actually became an adjunct at Northwestern, the Kellogg School. And they have one sales professor's name is Craig Wartman, and he's amazing. He actually runs the Kellogg Sales Institute. But the reality is, is he had just gotten there when I started doing a lot of this research, but there was no sales professors. And you start to realize like, why is that? And it turns out that there's no real theory behind sales. It's a bunch of techniques. It's seen as art. It's very hard to teach. It's almost like you're teaching theater class, right? And business school is more about spreadsheets and strict analysis of those kinds of sorts. And so you start to realize like nobody wants to be teaching sales and it's very hard to learn. And so most students actually have a hard time learning it. And so typically it's been left to companies to come up with a way to sell, but they actually don't think about it from the customer side. They think about it from their side. I call it the church of finance will say like, well, how many leads do we need? And what's the conversion rates? And you know, what's the funnel and how's the early funnel and the late funnel? And they're trying to optimize it for efficiency when they actually don't actually understand how people are trying to make progress. So I've flipped it. And the next book I'm working on, I have a first draft of it in and we're in the midst of hopefully getting out by beginning of Q3, but it's called demand side sales. Stop selling and help your customers make progress. And the crazy part is as I built the frameworks out for the sales side of it, I started to work with five or six different companies. And the first thing they realized is like they've been trying to get everybody to a demo, like the salespeople, like if I can get people to a demo for every call to a demo, that conversion for every demo to a close is really important. And so we start to analyze how people buy and you start to realize like they actually need three different demos. A demo in passive looking, which is tell me a story, versus a demo in active looking, which is tell me the possibilities, versus a demo in deciding, which is show me it won't break, you start to realize they actually need three different demos. And so they've been trying to optimize it for two years. They finally broke it apart and had three of them ask the customers where they were in the sales process, and they've been able to actually have the selling time. (laughs) That's so interesting. I'd love to explore a little bit more some of the biggest behavioral shifts or organizational changes that you advocate on companies that shift from the funnel or financial approach to sales to this customer-driven or demand-focused approach to sales? Yeah. So I think the first part is to think about it as the customer or consumers, they have their own implicit systems for making progress. So like the first thought, the first thought is actually only made four ways. You ask somebody a question, right? You tell somebody a story, you give them a new metric, or you state the obvious. That's how people get spaces in the brain, right? And the thing is, is marketers are so worried about being clever and funny and all these other things. But the reality is like, there's nothing funny about progress. And so they're measuring, for example, how well awareness is on the product. And you start to realize when you do these stories, very few people actually shop anymore. They're asking people for help. They're literally doing their own research, like they're doing their own things. And so trying to actually have a recall at the wrong moment 
it doesn't actually give you anything. And so part of this is making sure that people understand the buying process that people go through not the selling process, right? And then the second is what are the metrics? So the one we're building right now is sets of metrics around to know that people are in passive looking is like they've requested to hear, hear our email. And the thing is, is if I actually know that they've passed it on to five or more people, they're probably getting ready to go be an active looking. But if they're just getting it and they're not reading it and they're not looking at it, that's what we call passive looking. And that's okay. It's their terms, not our terms. They're buying for their reasons, not our reasons. We keep trying to actually push everybody to sell faster and more, and we end up devaluing our product so we can actually close earlier. And I think we actually hurt everybody. It's a very different perspective for sure. <laughs> That's so interesting. And so you put customers essentially in those three buckets, passive looking, active looking, and deciding. Yep. So I say that there's a first thought, and then there's passive looking, active looking, deciding. Deciding is about trade-offs. Right. And then there's first use. First use is about onboarding. It's about actually doing the job where the aspect of deciding is about making the trade offs to set the expectations. And then once you've bought it, now do you actually deliver on those expectations? And the other part to me is that every new innovation causes a new struggling moment for the next innovation. So think of the iPhone, right? The iPhone went from, you know, it's a phone, you don't have to carry the music. And then all of a sudden the camera came up. And then all of a sudden, you know, right now people don't buy it because it's a phone. They're buying it because it's a camera and that happens to be a phone. Yeah. Explain that to me a little bit more. I'm curious to unpack that concept. So here's the thing is that what you realize is that when you actually solve one problem, like we want to actually integrate this thing, the first set of new problems we had was the battery life and the reception. And you start to realize like people would end up, you know, two things they do is they would carry around batteries and cords and want to charge everywhere and their minds acceptable until somebody came up with better battery, right? And actually more efficient. And then what happens is they had a small little camera and they, you started to use pictures and then you had the birth of, you know, Facebook and Instagram. So think of how many people wanted to take a picture, but couldn't. And the razor was good enough. By the third, fourth generation, the camera, you can see and predict where the next generation of innovation has to become because of how it's actually designed in the product and how they use it. Yeah, that's really interesting. The example of how it shifted from one to the other to battery life to phones, I mean, it's pretty fascinating. I guess to try to summarize what you're saying, it's the idea that one innovation creates almost a butterfly effect or a cascade of new both opportunities and challenges from a product development perspective. That's exactly right. That's why there will always be more products. The question, are they meaningful enough? So think about it. When the iPhone first came out, like the iPhone 3, iPhone 4, people were switching almost every year. But it got to the point when it got to the 7 and the 8, it was like people were like, eh, it's good enough. Like I'm not struggling enough and it's not worth $1,000. It's good enough for where I am. But there were people who were buying it, but they were buying it for different reasons than the people who didn't buy it. And finally, the people who are on six going to the 10 or the 11 are really they're like, yeah, my old phone doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I mean, I pretty much only switch phones when my battery gets so degraded that I need to upgrade. So let me tell you something else, though. When you get a new phone, you usually have either a long weekend or you have some time to actually set it up that you actually have in your mind, like you'll do it right before a vacation or you do it during a vacation or you do it for a long weekend, a Memorial Day. It's so weird that you say that because the last time I bought a phone, I was on vacation right. without ever thinking about that. But that's what I'm saying is you can see the pattern, right? The pattern is, is that you need time to set it up. Like if your phone breaks, then it's an emergency. 
But when you actually don't have to replace it, and it's kind of like, all right, when should I do it? And you get to choose. It's like, yeah, I'm going to do this when I'm on vacation. It's Memorial Weekend or it's, you know, I'm doing a long weekend. The other thing is most people have a very hard time turning in their old phone. Like, so for example, when you switch from Android to Apple or Apple to Android, it doesn't matter. You don't want to actually turn your old phone in because you're afraid that you're not sure you're going to like the new phone. But if you go from an Apple 7 to a 10, you're fine with it because you know it's the basic same thing. Because there's always this anxiety or fear of like, but what if I don't like it? What's going to happen to my data? Yeah. I'm a pack rat with data. So I'm always worried. It's like, well, what if there's something I didn't get off the phone that I need later? Anyway, so this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm curious for listeners who want to start implementing this framework in some way, what would be one action step or first step that they could start to take to implement it? There's a couple of things. One is there's a bunch of resources on iTunes. So we have Jobs to be Done Radio, where it's about 40 episodes of people that we've used it with and interviews we've done and basic methods. There's a place called jobstobedone.org. We have some online training that basically covers the method and the tools. And then, you know, for the most part, there's a book called Competing Against Luck that Clay Christensen from the Harvard Business School and I collaborated on. He basically wrote about me and my clients, which is phenomenal. And that's out there. And then I have a few other books. One's called Choosing College. So helping having four kids and try to get them through college, it was a very difficult. And so I wrote a book about what causes people to say today's the day I'm going to go to school and what progress are they really seeking to do as opposed to what school they should pick. So not where to go, but why to go. And then I have the sales book coming out. So I'm trying to be everywhere on, on every topic. <laughs> Great. And we will make sure we'll include all that stuff in the show notes as well for listeners to be able to check out I'm curious in terms of a way to kind of concretely take step one, instead of just passively consuming that stuff, somebody says, I'm sold on it. I want to try this out. What would be the first step you would tell them to do? My suggestion is to interview somebody to get to the root causes, the underlying dominoes of why somebody bought something, whether it's your kid, whether it's a coworker, it's like, oh yeah, I bought a new briefcase. My belief is you're going to say, oh, the old one was wearing out. And like, okay, let's dive into it. And my thing is take 30 minutes and literally dig into and shoot the documentary of why they bought a new bag, right? And it's not random. There's underlying causes there that literally will help you understand kind of what happened and why they needed a new bag. And it would be social, emotional, and functional. Great. Yeah. I love this. Starting with a friend or coworker or something like that is a great way to get your feet wet. I do discourage to interview your spouse about anything only because you start to ask questions that you usually don't ask. It gets very uncomfortable fast. <laughs> so start with a friend or a coworker. It usually works a lot better. Great. Excellent advice. And Bob, we'll throw all those resources in the show notes that you mentioned before. One more time, where can listeners find you and your work online? So I'm at the rewiredgroup.com where basically I have a small boutique consulting firm and then I teach at Northwestern. So you can find me in the Kellogg School. And then Twitter, I'm bmesta, M-O-E-S-T-A. And I'm on LinkedIn. So if there's anything I can help you with, I'm driven to basically help put these things out into the world and hopefully have other people using them before I pass. <laughs> Well, Bob, this has been a fascinating conversation. So many great insights. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of your wisdom. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email.
I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. <laughs> <laughs>